So God created all of us with a natural need to have children. Um, most people, or just about everyone, has this natural feeling, some suppress it perhaps, but everyone has this feeling that like to have a child. It's a natural feeling that God gives everyone. It is also a great mitzvah. It's the first of our 613 commandments when God already commanded Adam right after he created him in Genesis. Peru uravu, be fruitful and multiply. Um, it's also considered one of the most important mitzvot in the Torah that we should all have children. Um, now, for a couple that struggles to have children, firstly, for somebody who struggles to find their significant other or to find a spouse with which to build a family, it's, of course, a very, very great struggle um, and very difficult experience. But then for a couple who plans on building a family but struggles to have children, it can be extremely challenging and very, very frustrating. Um, these pains, the pains of not finding your spouse, um, which is really a topic of its own, not for today. We, could do, we should do a class on Shidochim, finding your Mashert. Um, that's a great topic for our class. So, um, so but uh, this, the, the pain of not having a child, especially somebody who tries to have children for many years and is unsuccessful, um, or even if they are successful, but the years through which they're struggling is a very, very, very difficult thing. It's a very difficult moment. Um, they say that one only truly feels God after they're in a, such a situation where they've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and um, praying to God. And that's when you really develop a relationship with God, especially when you're in a situation where there's nobody else that can help you. So... Um, <coughs> Unfortunately, um, infertility is a fairly common problem. About 8 to 15% of couples, depending on how you count it, struggle with infertility. So it's fairly common. Now, many of our ancestors and Jewish heroes were infertile. Um, if we go back to our forefathers, Abraham and Sarah uh, waited many, many years before they had a child. Um, Isaac and Rebecca are going to wait 20 years after they get married in um, two weeks from now before they have a child. Later, Rachel, um, is Jacob's second wife, is also going to wait many years before she has a child. Jacob and his first wife, Leah, have children straight away. They don't struggle with it. Yes? Does it say why they wanted to wait so long before they had a child? Why did our ancestors have to wait so long before they had a child? Why did God not give them children straight away? So the Midrash in Shir HaShirim Rabbah actually asks this question and tells us God did so. He waited for them to have children because he wanted to hear their prayers. He wanted for them to, he wanted to hear um, them ask for it. Now, it's hard for us to understand how someone could go through so much suffering just because God wants to hear their prayer. But we do know that sometimes God does not give us things until we ask for it. God does not want us to take things for granted. Um, as you can imagine, somebody who waited to have children, uh, the val everyone values their children more than anything else in the world. But the way a person who waited to have children values their children, just as somebody who waited to have a spouse values their spouse, just as somebody who... Um, Waited for anything greatly values it in a way that you don't value it if it came easy. And so um, God wants us to, uh, wanted our forefathers, the Medrash says, to pray, want to hear their prayer. 
and that is why um, he did not give them children straight away. Others say, why specifically all of our ancestors, with the exception of Leah, um, all of our mothers, matriarchs, all struggled to have children um, because as our people are, are a miraculous people, our people stand above nature, with our very survival is miraculous. And so therefore the very beginning, the creation of our people was miraculous as well. And so Abraham and Sarah could not have children, they had children miraculously. Isaac and Rebecca could not have children, they had children miraculously. Rachel could not have children, she had children miraculously, because our nation is a nation of miracles. We stand above nature, we have survived only thanks to miracles, and therefore the very birth of our nation from our first ancestors was miraculous, was through miracles, did not happen naturally. Another important example of um, somewhat infertile in, the, in Scripture is Samuel's mother, the prophet Samuel. His mother, Hannah, did not have any children uh, for many years. She prays to God from the depth of her heart, uh, from the depths of her heart, pouring out her heart before God, is the words of the book, in the book Samuel, um, praying for a child. And we use Hannah as our example of the ideal prayer. And we learn many rules of prayer um, from the way Hannah prayed, um, perhaps because the deepest kind of prayer um, and the most powerful prayer is when someone prays for a child. God did indeed grant Hannah a child, and she did indeed have um, her son, Samuel, who grew up to become the prophet, the great prophet Samuel, Shmuel. Um, there were others, um, David's wife, um, Michal, daughter of Saul, never had children, there are many others throughout scripture that, don't, that do not have children. Some that wait many years and eventually have some that don't have at all. But we don't know why God makes some couples infertile and some he does not. Some have children easily. Some have children straight away. We don't know why. Um, some do eventually have children after many years of anticipation, waiting and suffering. Other people are never, other couples are never blessed with children. We don't know why, just as we don't know why God doesn't give people, gives people all sorts of challenges and all sorts of suffering. Some people don't find their basherit, their significant others. Some people have medical problems. Some people struggle from financial problems. Some people struggle from emotional problems. Um, other issues, uh, everybody has their own. Um, in Yiddish we say everyone has their own little peckle. Everyone has their own little package of problems. Um, but some people's packages are bigger than others. And some people suffer much more than others. And we don't know why God creates suffering um, or why some suffer more than others. We don't truly understand. We do believe, though, we mentioned this, we mentioned this when we were talking about um, trust in God um, last week. We do know that God, we do believe God has a plan. For everyone, and we should do our best to try to overcome all challenges that we have, both emotionally overcome and praying to God and to overcome our challenges, and then also doing everything we can to overcome our challenges if they're medical challenges, to find all medical cures we can, if there are other forms of challenges, to do everything we can to overcome them. But we also recognize that we believe that God has a plan, and therefore we should make the most of what God gives us and what he has given us and even in our struggles we believe God has a plan for everything and a reason for everything 
Um, and so therefore we should try to make the most of what we do have and we should at the same time be always sensitive to the pain and struggling of other people, uh, particularly people with infertility. Um, just as we are sensitive to any other pain, we should be very sensitive to people struggling, very aware of it, and um, try to help in any way we can. Um, sometimes you can help um, by actually offering solutions, and often um, we can help by just giving moral and emotional support. Um, and that's often the best kind of help we can to help others who are suffering. Now, today, medical advances have made it possible for most naturally infertile couples to have children. Not all, but most couples that are naturally infertile can have children. Um, and for many struggling couples, this has become a very, very great blessing, although it can be very, very expensive. Um, and very difficult. In Judaism, um, we have a mitzvah to be fruitful and multiply, to have children. We should do everything that we can to have children. It's not clear, though, that this mitzvah includes medical intervention. In other words, we should try to have children naturally. If we cannot have children naturally, what is not necessarily required um, to fulfill the commandment to use medical interventions to have children. Um, although most would regardless because most couples want to have children. And it's particularly true, one of the biggest challenges today for parents suffering with infertility, for potential parents, for couples suffering with infertility, one of the biggest challenges today when there are medical solutions for most of the problems um, is the cost. Unfortunately, insurance does not cover, medical insurances in this country don't cover the cost of infertility treatments. And the treatments can be very, very, very pricey. And um, sometimes one has to go through many, many, a couple has to go through many, many treatments at very, very great expense um, to, be able to, um, to be able to successfully have children. So while there may not be a requirement in halacha to use medical interventions to have a child, most Jewish couples, given their great natural desire to have children, and given the great Jewish value that we have of having children, most will do everything they can to have children. Today in Israel, insurance pays for infertility treatments. So any infertile couple in Israel um, that has insurance and there is universal health care in Israel, um, insurance pays for infertility treatments. There, has, there have been laws advanced in different states um, to require insurance to pay for infertility. Um, personally, I think it would be great if insurance here would do the same. Um, I'd be happy, and I think most of us would be, to pay that little extra premium um, that it would take to cover infertility treatments as well as part of um, insurance covering. As far as I know, um, no states here in the United States currently require it. Um, but um, given that insurance covers so many other perhaps dubious treatments today, um, one can definitely um, one can definitely feel see the reason why one should cover why they should cover at least infertility, which causes such great suffering to so many families, so many couples. Uh, but for now, there are 
here in this country some wonderful Jewish organizations that both pay for and facilitate infertility treatments, um, either at no cost or at great discounts to anyone who is um, in need. There's a number of great organizations like that. Jewish families, if you are internal about adoption as an option instead of infertility treatments? Very good question. I'll get to adoption. Um, I'm focusing mostly on fertility treatments itself today, but I'll touch on adoption. Excellent. Thank you for asking. So, one of the earliest, and, it's, and, and I should say it, it's a great mitzvah if we can help facilitate anybody who can do um, uh, any, uh, to help these organizations that facilitate and help people, couples do infertility treatments. Um, and uh, we definitely encourage people to support them in every way they can. Now, one of the earliest interventions um, for infertile couples was artificial insemination. If a husband is unable to successfully inseminate, um, it can be done artificially. Um, and the sperm can be entered into a um, uh, can be entered into a woman um, using um, different tools artificially. And interestingly, the first recorded artificial semination is actually in the Talmud, in the book of in the tractate of Chagiga. Um, and it has been mentioned here and there throughout history. Um, they weren't very good at it historically, but starting in the 19th century, it has been extensively practiced medically. And this could be done both by using the, um, the husband's sperm uh, for a married woman, or um, if the husband's sperm is not able to conceive, um, it could be done using a donor's sperm, or for a woman who does not have a husband, it can in theory, be done using a donor's sperm. And um, this has been done extensively and definitely has become much more common artificial insemination as we've gotten better and better at it uh, medically. In more recent years, starting in the 1970s, we've developed an alternative for a couple that has trouble with conception, which is called in vitro fertilization. And in vitro fertilization is either for a woman who has trouble with her ovulation um, or has trouble with the embryo once fertilized, um, sticking to the um, to the uterus, um, connecting to the uterus, and so um, they can often be fertilized. So the sperm and egg can be fertilized outside the body, um, create an embryo, and then that's usually injected a few days later into a into the the woman or into a surrogate. So there are a number of halachic problems and issues with these procedures that need to be taken into account um, whenever these procedures are done. So before we touch on these, it's important to keep in mind that um, many people have performed these procedures. Um, I know many people who have, um, including some, perhaps some people here, and we all know people who have, and my purpose over here is not to comment on what has been done in the past um, and not to question things that have been done, but to give you general guidelines for the future, uh, to understand the future. Our focus is not on what we have done, but on what we can do. Uh, we should, though, keep in mind that there may be some complexity in what we call halacha, or Jewish laws. Um, if something problematic has been done, it can, as we'll mention, create some halachic concerns. So 
While on the one hand, having children is the first mitzvah, it's the greatest mitzvah in many ways, and it's a very, very important mitzvah in Judaism. On the other hand, one of the central values of Judaism is what we call the family unit. So Judaism in many ways gave civilization the family structure. And unlike almost every culture around us, we have, and we know today, thanks to, um, thanks to all the, um, the DNA analyses that have been done, um, Jews have kept to the family structure in a way that no other culture and no other people has done throughout history. Um, and this is central to Judaism, a very big part of our rules are what we call the arayos, forbidden relationships. Um, and, in, and we actually read about it on Yom Kippur. One of the things we read about is about the family structure. And the, the family unit that Judaism expects and the family and the and that the family unit that Judaism values is where children are raised by two biological parents whom they know, whom they recognize. That's the ideal that every person should be clear about who their parents are. Children should be conceived and ideally raised with two healthy biological parents. That is the ideal Jewish family unit. The Jewish family unit has been a very, very strong value. And because of this family unit, um, in Judaism we look very, we see, um, we look very severely at adultery, which creates children that don't know who their fathers are. Um, incest, which creates, again, an unhealthy, where you don't really have, um, you're not born into a healthy family. Um, and uh, and most of our laws prohibit incest, and even uh, uh, there's many laws prohibiting these, as well as um, even um, having children born out of wedlock or outside of marriage. Judaism frowns on it as well. Um, our value is for children to be raised in a strong, not only in a family structure, but to recognize their biological parents. Family is a, has a premium we put a premium on family in Judaism, and particularly on biological family. There are a lot of rules um, that involve family in Judaism. It's important to know who one's biological mother is. The Jewish line passes through the biological mother. It's important to know who one's biological father is. The tribal identity passes through one's biological father. When called up um, to the Torah, we always call someone up with the name of their biological father. When, um, when praying for someone, we always pray for them with the name of their biological mother. So we see um, their people's biological parents as central to their identity and who they are, and central to this family unit. Yes? Are you going to discuss the children of No, but let's talk about it afterwards. Good question, um, but let's let's talk about it later. About children of surrogate. I'm gonna get that. I'm gonna get to. So, so artificial conception allows creates a lot of problems with the basic family structure that's so central to Judaism. Um, it also creates all sorts of problems, even in our and issues in our society today. Um, 
One, one particular concern is a couple that cannot conceive themselves often, and it's very, become very common today, often will use a donor, either a sperm donor or an egg donor or both to help them conceive. Um, now, when using a sperm donor or an egg donor, so the general halachic consensus, in other words, consensus of Jewish scholars is that family identity for all halachic laws follow the biological parents. Not the parents who raise the child, but the biological parents. Our legal system has become very confused over it, um, extremely confused. Um, just to give you a classic example that's working its way through the courts the last few decades and still not resolved, um, a couple agrees to have a child with donors, and then before the baby's born, um, the father decides to walk away. Is he responsible? The, the father, the adoptive father who seeked, sought a donor, uh, decides to walk away. Does he have any responsibility for that child? So that's an issue that's been working its way through the courts for decades and is not yet resolved and goes this way and that way. Um, secular courts. Secular courts. And there are all sorts of similar concerns and issues. Um, a, another issue that's worked its way through the courts and also not resolved. A couple has a child with a surrogate mother and then um, they decide they want to abort the child and the surrogate mother refuses to. So the, anyway, it leads to, as you can see, as you can see, all of these artificial, non-natural means of creating a child leads to all sorts of complexities. So getting back to our Jewish, those are just issues that the secular courts are dealing with, and there are many, many, many similar issues that need to be dealt with. So... So from a Jewish perspective, the family identity of the child for all Jewish law generally follows the biological parents, not the, the, not the predetermined parents. Um, today you can legally decide that this is going to be the father, even though the biological father is somebody else, if you sign the contract beforehand, um, at least in most states. Um, it's not the predetermined parents in Judaism. It is the biological parents who are the halachic parents of the child. So this child, this child would then be forbidden by ma from marrying any relative who is a biological relative, regardless of who raised them. They'd be forbidden from marrying a biological relative. If they don't know who their biological parents are, it creates a huge problem. They would follow their mother for their Jewish status, their biological mother. They would follow their father's tribe for tribal status, Cohen, Levite, Israelite. And because of all the above, it's very important that we always know who the biological parents are. For that reason, a child should never be created um, from a blind donor where we don't know who the father or mother is. There are further problems. If you don't know, can you convert your child? There are, if done, there are solutions. Yeah. But ideally, it should not be done. 
Um, if done after the fact, it's complicated, but there are solutions. But, it can, but ideally, it's best not to do. Um, there are also, there's also a problem creating a child um, from, a, uh, from a donor with a, uh, with a mother who is already married or a father who's already married because since the child has a parent from outside the marriage, it's essentially a child of adultery. Now, now it's not whether it's actually halachic adultery and whether after the fact the child is considered this halachic status of a child of adultery is debated and after the fact is a different issue, but ideally, but it's important to recognize that it's a very serious problem and therefore should generally be avoided. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, so with donors, sperm donors, egg donors, is a very, very serious problem in halacha, in Jewish law. And um, therefore, I would, although on the one hand, we're balancing the parent's need to have a child, um, we strongly discourage use of donors. If donors were used after the fact, there's often solutions. Um, halacha, Jewish law, is complex, and often we have workarounds and loopholes and ways to solve problems. But ideally, ideally, um, it should, uh, ideally, we should avoid the use of donors, um, egg donors or sperm donors. If it is done, um, or if it was done, then um, to figure out the situation afterwards, um, what exactly the status of that child is, um, a rabbi has to be consulted, and a beth din, and it, could get, um, and it can be resolved, but ideally we should avoid it. Um, a much better ideal for somebody who cannot have their own biological child would then be to adopt a child. I'll get to some details in adoption in a moment. Um, another um, more common intervention, um, and this is for a woman who has had trouble carrying a baby to term. Uh, her uterus is not able to carry a baby to term. Um, we commonly use in vitro fertilization and then use a surrogate mother. So you use the two biological parents, the couple, and you... Um, <coughs> You, we use the, with the couple's sperm and egg, and we implant them into a surrogate mother, a volunteer, or somebody, so, sometimes somebody who's hired to carry the child to term. Um, again, the halachic consensus is that this child will be considered a child of their biological parents. Um, so the surrogate doesn't have to be Jewish for the child to be No, in fact... In fact, there are some Jewish scholars that believe that while the main parents are the biological parents, the surrogate mother does have a certain status of motherhood. And for that reason, one should avoid using a relative because using a relative can create halachic questions of a child of incest, which could be a problem. Um, the, and one should also avoid even using another Jewish woman because it could create other halachic problems. Um, and the ideal, if one is going to take the route of surrogacy, would actually be to use a single, not married because then you run into adultery problems, a single non-Jewish woman.
to be your surrogate mother. Um, when doing good, since there are some scholars that feel that the non-Jewish mother does have a um, surrogate mother, does have some status of motherhood, we do what we call a gear l'chumra, a conversion just in case. It's not a full conversion. It's just when the children are born, we'll put them, we'll have a bet din come and we'll put the children in the mikveh just to make sure they're 100% Jewish. Uh, but that's generally the best way to do it. Um, it can be done through a surrogate mother. Um, most scholars do allow for it, some don't. But again, it's done usually with a single non-Jewish mother, a woman, and um, then after the child's born, the child's put in the mikveh. So if yes. a couple become pregnant naturally and the mother is not Jewish, at the time she becomes pregnant, the child will be born Jewish. A child who is born when the mother is Jewish is Jewish. But she doesn't have to have been Jewish when she No, does con conception she doesn't matter, born. only birth matters. So it could be the day the child... Absolutely. Is Jewish, No, because we follow the biological parents. We always follow the biological parents. And the biological mother is Jewish. The child is Jewish. But it doesn't have any um, DNA from the mother. Sure. The they do from the biological mother. Oh, it's a surrogate. Oh, okay. Not a, she didn't donate the egg. If she donated the egg, it raised a whole host of problems, including the child's going to have to go through a full conversion. But in a surrogate, yeah, which is very fairly common because not being able to ch carry a child to term is one of the most common reasons for infertility, especially in older women. So, um, so it's it's fairly common, commonly done. And um, again, the child is the child of the biological parents. Now, one of the biggest. One of the biggest challenges with our all artificial conception, whether artificial insemination or in vitro fertilization, is being certain that you get the right sperm and the right egg. You've probably heard stories, they're in the news every once in a while, how a family discovers later that the clinic either accidentally or intentionally switched the egg, switched the sperm for someone else's. Some clinics were... Um, have a record of hundreds or thousands of people they did it for as people are more and more people are doing these one, two, three and me testing they're discovering it more and more so now in Jewish law that's a serious problem because we need to know accurately who the biological parents are because um, it matters for Jewish status it matters for how you call them it matters for tribal status it matters for um, rules of whom you're allowed to marry. It matters for a lot of things who the biological parents are. We need to be able to accurately determine who the biological parents are and ensure there is no mix-up. So the halachic solution for this is supervision, or the Hebrew term for that is hashgacha, supervision. A third party, a neutral party, not the parents, not the, or at least not the doctors, no one working for the, um, no one working for the infertility clinic, must witness every medical step that is done in the process, um, 
through, whether it's preparing the sperm, preparing the egg, or, the, um, or even uh, fertilizing them, every step must be witnessed by a, uh, by a supervisor, by somebody who's watching. And in between, in other words, when every step of the process, there's different steps that have to be done at different intervals, at every point when the in-between, that sperm, egg, or embryo is under lock and key that only the supervisor has, a lock, has the key to. And it must be taken out from that lock and key by the supervisor every time to ensure it doesn't get mixed up. Unfortunately, here in the United States, there, are no, there is no regulation for infertility clinics. In Israel, there is, there is the, um, the um, Ministry of, Educa- of, of Health has a certifying board for infertility clinics, and they have regular testing and supervision, and it's much more organized. Many countries in Europe have it. Here in the United States, there are, there is, there are no rules and regulations for infertility, infertility clinics. They can essentially do whatever they want. Um, it probably would not be a bad thing if there was, in general, third-party supervision and if it became a standard in the entire industry in infertility clinics. Today, though, in the United States, only Jewish couples, um, those... Um, those that want to follow halacha Jewish law are the ones that insist on third-party hashkacha, third-party supervision. Um, whenever a Jewish couple tries artificial conception in some way or another, they work with one of these organizations, uh, one of these infertility organizations that all provide, in addition to support, they all provide hashkacha or supervision services. Now, most clinics, most infertility clinics in, um, the, in the big cities in the U.S. today, including those here in L.A. and even in the South Bay, um, already have experience working with Jewish couples and working with hashkacha, working with supervision, and are comfortable working with a Jewish supervising agency and will do so when asked to do so. Um, I would encourage anybody considering using an infertility clinic for some form of artificial um, conception to go to use hashkacha or supervision, it's the only way you can ensure that that child is actually yours. If you do not use hashkacha, if you do not use supervision, um, I would encourage a um, DNA test to be done before birth to ensure that it's actually your child. So, for those who are in a situation where For those who are in a situation where um, there is no medical solution for their um, infertility, for those who, for that matter, are in a situation where um, there is no, uh, where there may be a medical solution, but Jewish law um, frowns on such a solution, such as sperm or egg donors, as we mentioned earlier, um, there is another option which was mentioned before, which is to adopt a child, take, a, take somebody else's child. Um, the Talmud says whoever raises somebody else's child, it is as if they gave birth to him. Um, and there's nothing greater than raising somebody else's child in need. So um, it's the greatest thing that we can do um, to raise other people's children. Um, unfortunately, in this country today, um, there are many Jewish children that... Um, it's hard to find Jewish homes for them to be raised in. Um, it's true somewhat for adoption of babies. 
It's an even bigger problem while there's a waiting list in this country to adopt babies. There, is, there are many older children that struggle to, um, that struggle to find a, uh, that struggle to find a home and struggle to find parents. And uh, it is the greatest mitzvah that people can do if they're able to do so, if they're in a situation where they can to actually bring children um, in need into their home. Now, when adopting a child, because we put so much, because in Judaism, knowing your biological parents is so important, it is very important that children who are adopted know they are adopted and not told to them only many years later. Um, there's a lot of trauma if children find out later that they're adopted many years later. It's traumatic to a child. It's a shock. Um, we know today in psychology that um, people really struggle finding out that they're adopted later in life. Um, it's a lot healthier and a lot better for the child, even though parents are afraid that the child won't love them as much or they can't make the child feel that they're their real parents. It is the best for the child and best from a Jewish perspective to let children know from the very young age they're adopted. It's also a very good thing to know exactly who their parents are, who their, bi who their biological parents are. Um, sometimes, the, usually, the adoptive parents can get records. Um, often, they don't bother to get records. Today, for medical reasons, it's important to know who your adoptive parents are because often it's important to know what, you know, what, your, your, what your genetic background is. Um, so it's really important to know who the adoptive parents are regardless. From a halachic perspective, it's important to know were those original parents Jewish? Were they not Jewish? Um, if they were Jewish, what was their halachic status? So all these things are really important. In general, we believe that people need to have a sense of identity. And people need, part of that identity is knowing who your parents are. And everybody wants to know, which is why most people who are adopted end up trying to find out um, who their biological parents are. Most people want to be able to identify themselves, know who I am. Know, and part of that is knowing who are my parents, where did I come from. So you know the story of the, the triplets that were separated at birth oh, and, yeah. and, yeah, and adopted by three separate families. And they discovered when one happened to attend the same college as another one. And then, yeah. Yeah, and that's very and sad. They could have known that all those years. Yeah, very good point. So it's very unfortunate when children don't find out when they're young that they're adopted. They don't find out who their siblings are, who their biological family is. Um, it's a mistake for, I believe, for adopting adoptive parents to avoid telling the children information about their biological family. Um, it's, it's part of who they are and they deserve to know. So you haven't addressed that adopted child, what is his Jewish ancestry, who is, uh, where do we go from here? Who's the child's Jewish? So if the child's mother was not Jewish, the child would not be halakhically Jewish and would have to go through a conversion. The process of converting a child is different than converting an adult and I'm not going to discuss it right now. Um, if the parents are Jewish, if the mother is Jewish, then the child would halakhically be Jewish. Uh, it's still important to know who the father was, who the mother was, what exactly their tribal status was. Uh, so we would want to know that as well. So, and we would also want to know who they are to ensure that the child doesn't later marry their siblings, yes. um, which while rare is possible and has happened, 
and uh, therefore should be, um, it's important to know who someone's biological family is. Let me take a, a, a one or two questions that I'm going to finish off with. Adele. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not clear. You said when the child's adopted, since you're doing them with the, raising someone's child, the um, parents that adopted them, adopted parents, are considered their biological parents? No, not at all. Okay, biological parents are always biological parents. You can never change your biological parents. And I didn't understand what you yeah. said about it. No, your bi biological parents are always your biological parents. And it's always a person's identity, which is why it's so important for people to know who their biological no, parents so what are. What she's asking is the mitzvah. The adoptive parents get the greatest mitzvah to have raised a child. There's nothing greater than raising someone else's child. But their status doesn't change. <coughs> they like are the not the... Okay. They are not the so uh, biological parents. The child is not Jewish if the... Uh, they can convert to Judaism. They can convert. They'd have to convert. Yes. Yes, Shari and Carol, and then I'm going to um, conclude. Would you say if anybody is made uh, via some kind of a donor, whether it's sperm or egg uh, or both uh, with a donor, that they should uh, be compelled to get DNA testing to avoid any uh, matching up with somebody that's a relative? Yes, but I would say to even avoid that, um, we should, even if we do use donors, as I mentioned earlier, which generally halacha would frown on, uh, but if we do use donors, we should avoid we should avoid using blind donors. It's important to know exactly who that donor is. Some states have laws requiring um, at least biological, um, basic genetic information to be shared about the donor, um, or at least stored about the donor, so that later in life they could know what their genetic background it, is. It does, a second part of that, does uh, Judaism uh, accept the results of DNA testing? As that is a very good question. We are doing a class on DNA testing on January 12th. <laughs> there we square. Carol. Even though they were born to a non-Jewish, to non-Jewish mothers, um, two two different mothers, that they were that their souls had always been Jewish. And, and, uh, we believe that converts are born with a Jewish soul and only later discover that Jewish soul when they convert. So there is such a belief, yes, but it's really for a discussion about conversion. So let me conclude. So while we don't know, like we said, why God causes infertility, we do believe that God has a plan and mission for everyone. Um, some people are not blessed with children, um, and we don't know why. Some people don't find their basheret. Some people don't find their basheret early enough while they're still naturally able to. Um, some people do, and God just doesn't bless them. We don't know why. Um, in the last... But we do believe that everyone's able to have spiritual children. And in many ways, spiritual children are greater than physical children. At the very end of Isaiah, he addresses the many people in his days who were enslaved um, by the Assyrian wars, uh, uh, captured and enslaved during the Assyrian wars. And many of them were made unable to have children, as was often done to slaves at the time. And um, he tells them um, in the fa very famous verse, Benatati lahem, I will give them in my house a hand and name better than sons and daughters. 
through their actions, they're able to do even more than they're able to do even more than children. Um, one example, um, Sarah Schenerer was a um, woman in Poland, um, the early 20th century. Um, she was married very short and got divorced. She never had any children. In 1917, she started the first Jewish girls' school in Poland. Until then, Jews were, Jewish girls were largely literate, but they would learn to read and write at home, and that was the end of their formal education. Um, she started the first Jewish, Jewish girls' school in Poland, really in Eastern Europe, called Beis Yaakov, um, in Krakow in 1917. Um, it grew very quickly. She soon opened a teaching seminary in Krakow to train teachers because there weren't enough female teachers because they hadn't gone to school. Um, within a decade and a half, within about 15 years, almost every Jewish girl in Europe was going to a school. Most of them, branches, most of them by the same name, under the Beis Yaakov umbrella that she had built. Um, since then, um, Jewish girls schooling um, by the ninth, late 1930s had become universal. Every Jewish girl was going to school. Um, while Sarah um, Schenerer had no biological children, she had millions of spiritual children. Every Jewish girl who's gone to school, especially Jewish girls' school since. Another example Stephen mentioned earlier, the rabbi um, was not blessed with children. Um, he sent out thousands of couples around the world to build Jewish communities. Uh, he considered all those couples and everybody whom was involved within those communities to be his children. And um, so while he himself, he and his wife, did not have any biological children, um, they, were, um, they had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of spiritual children. The impact they made was, is eternal. Um, so many today struggle, and in a sense, there are many today who are struggling not with biological infertility, but with spiritual infertility. If spiritual, if spiritual children, which is our good deeds and our impact, is greater than biological children, then those that are just focused on furthering their own success and their own happiness are not creating any spiritual children, are suffering from biological infertility. Not because they can't, but because they've chosen not to. And so it's really important that rather than focusing on our own success, our own happiness, to focus on the impact that we can make, how we can make an impact, change the world, how we can have spiritual children. Some people only notice their loss when it's too late. Um, unfortunately, I've officiated at too many funerals where when I sat down with the children after after their, uh, before the funeral to compo compose a eulogy and I'd ask, what can you tell me about your dad? What can you tell me about your mom? He loved sports. <laughs> she traveled across the world. He was really great at his job. Um, but what can you tell me about the impact, what they did for others, what they did for their community? And unfortunately, there's so many who haven't done that. And some people only notice it when it's too late. And so it's really up to us to begin working on creating not just biological children, but on creating spiritual children. 
And it's up to us to ensure that we have spiritual children, we have a spiritual future, and we have a spiritual impact. It's up to us to make sure that we make a difference, to leave a legacy, not just biological, but a spiritual legacy behind after we leave this world so we can have spiritual children, which as we said, is greater than the biological children.